Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Fifty years ago this month, in the wee hours of June 28, 1969, nine New York City police officers entered Greenwich Village's small Stonewall Inn. Police raids of gay bars were a frequent occurrence at the time, but this time was different. Joining me in the studio to remember the Stonewall Uprising and its legacy are three guests. Stephen Lewis Brawley is author of the book Gay and Lesbian St. Louis. He'll be at Missouri History Museum Sunday afternoon presenting Beyond Stonewall, commemorating St. Louis's LGBTQIA milestones. We also have Paul Teal. He's a St. Louis-based writer who lived in Greenwich Village when the Stonewall events occurred. He's written an award-winning remembrance of his experiences in those days. He recently received an honorary doctorate from the University of Missouri-St. Louis for his work in the local literary community. And we have Miranda Rechtenwald. She's the curator of local history for Washington University Libraries. She's co-creator of a wonderful online research archive called Mapping LGBTQ St. Louis. Stephen, Paul, Miranda, thanks so much for joining me today. Sure. Great, you. thank you. So, Paul, you lived in the West Village at the time of the Stonewall Uprising. And that very first night, you were walking home when you came upon a melee in process. What was, what was the scene like? Well, I was, I was in the East Village uh, because nothing much ever happened in the West Village. Oh, the West Village was played out by that point. Yeah, okay. and uh, most of the writers, poets, et cetera, that I knew lived in the East Village. So I wandered back home, good old safe West Village, and all of a sudden there was this crowd of people in front of the stone wall. It was amazing. Uh, and you eventually were able to piece together that there had been a raid that went that went wrong when some folks in the place uh, resisted. Right. There was a uh, young man who was working at trying to undo a parking meter, was rocking it back and forth so it could use it as a ra- battering ram to open the door and get at the police. And people were throwing pennies. And the, the amazing thing was there were a lot of gays in the... Uh, audience, but there was also a lot of straights. It was Friday night, and they were down the village for entertainment, and this was the greatest of entertainment for them. Hmm. Was there a sense? It sounds scary, for one thing. Yeah. I mean, was there a sense uh, that something historic was happening, or or when did that feeling start coming into it? Uh, It just happened over the next few days where it was considered historic or whatever, unusual. the Times didn't play it up very much, but uh, it was amazing. The straight people that liked to village, liked to visit the village, were sort of amazed that here the gays, the fags, were actually fighting back, and that was unusual, of course, mm. because for years the gay bars and all had been raided by the police. Uh, There's always signs in the bars saying this is a raided premise. And uh, it sort of didn't welcome you into the place. Yeah. Let, let's bring Stephen and Miranda into this. Let's talk a bit about the mood at, at that time as we can reconstruct it. Uh, it had long been a fact of life, American life. LGBTQ people were just simply not allowed to live their lives openly and at peace. Rampant discrimination, violence, police raids like the ones at Stonewall were not uncommon. Was this a moment when the community basically just said enough is enough? Well, in in St. Louis, the events in New York really didn't get a lot of attention, if if any attention. 
Um, but it definitely was a time of 1969 when enough is enough was starting to um, become the general feeling. Um, and in St. Louis, in actually on Halloween night in 1969, um, was the first um, equivalent action here in St. Louis of a reaction against police enforcement. Um, but the, the events um, that June didn't actually trickle here to St. Louis. Um, Stephen, what have what have Stephen, what, what happened at the Onyx Bar on, on Halloween 1969? Sure. So um, nine young men um, were out for Halloween evening and probably not considered um, female impersonators or drag queens. With, from what we understand, they were um, out for Halloween in drag. And the, um, and the nine young men had been at the Onyx Bar, which was um, down the street here from the studio um, on Olive. And they apparently had left the bar, and the police reports have some sketchy language about causing disturbance. So um, the, the nine um, men, young men were arrested on the masquerading charge because from 1840-ish to— From, from 1843 um, all the way through the 1980s. To 1985, it was against the law to um, present as a member of the opposite sex, so you couldn't do drag, male or female. So that has a lot of implications for folks who may have been— today um, identified as trans or, or female impersonator. So they were arrested, hauled downtown. And so at WashU, where Miranda's from, there was a new organization called the Mandrake Society, which was, as far as we know, the first officially um, sanctioned or known homophile rights organization in St. Louis was formed, um, a small group. And they, you know, we didn't have cell phones. And so they got a phone tree going and they um, mobilized a group to go downtown to help um, get bail for these folks um, to uh, get them a lawyer. And then, you know, of course, this would proceed. The charges would be dismissed. But from that, the Mandrake Society had a platform and created an opportunity for St. Louis to look at um, gay rights in a way that it had never had before. Well, would the Mandrake Society be the, the first time there was really a public mobilization uh, of folks who were willing to identify publicly? To some extent. I mean, we, we, there's so much lost history that we don't know about from St. Louis being founded in 17-whatever to um, those 60, 1960 years. But we do know that this group um, did get traction, and they, get, they were very smart, and they organized a lot of activities. But what they did is a counter, uh, kind of a protest drag ball the next three or four Halloweens. So they had the Mandrake Society ball. And so they had drag this big drag. It was very tuxedos and gowns and they had this major um, event and we have amazing photos and information about these events and so it kept that message going for several years up to like 74. Paul you wrote that in those early days of activism after Stonewall um, some folks started out emulating the civil rights groups and women's liberation groups but really brought their own flavor to the idea of political protest. Oh god yes. it was it was sort of amazing to hear uh, these uh, fairly femme voices saying Robert's rules of order and et cetera et cetera. And I, it was a little disconcerting, but uh, I'm really glad they did it and got together. And I guess it was the marches eventually that uh, crystallized the whole movement mm-hmm. in New York. And something, folks today are maybe privileged enough to not quite understand is just how revolutionary a thing it was to march down the street, to march through Central Park, identifying as a gay person. Wow, yes. In 1970, they had the first big march in New York. And uh, 
people were afraid to march down six. They marched from down Sixth Avenue to the park, and they were afraid to march. They were scared, and then gradually, people uh, when after they got to 14th Street, a lot people started joining them, and people were lining the streets to watch the parade, and then joined the parade, and so it was. It became sort of festive, which mm. was nice. And part of why that was so dangerous at the time, uh, Miranda, is there's really a history of using ordinances like that anti-masquerading uh, or cross-dressing ordinance as a way to police behaviors that were considered outside the norm. Right. It is something that um, certainly by the 1970s, so in 1971, the ACLU here in St. Louis began trying to find someone who would go up against this case. And part of the, the argument that was raised at the time was if you just looked at fashion, um, uh, men were wearing longer hair and bell bottoms and um, what what made something a male piece of clothing or a female piece of clothing was certainly much fuzzier by that point. And so rules like that could be kind of selectively enforced by the police against someone whose personal behavior was... Um, was disliked and that's um and that's where the root of of that law being challenged in court comes to that it's unconstitutional it was ruled unconstitutional by the uh, missouri supreme court but um, policing is definitely something that is woven throughout st louis lgbtq history um just as in new york well when you criminalize the private lives of a community what's the broader impact on that on that community do you have thoughts, Stephen? Sure. I mean, we you know have been doing our best to uncover um, St. Louis's hidden, lost um, LGBTQIA history for a number of years now, and so the easiest, sadly, the easiest information to find is um, on newspaper searches and archives is the negative stories of people um, normally being arrested. Masquerading is a big one. Um, you can um, sodomy, but and, and things of that nature. So what you do is. When you go in to search this history, you, you can't use the modern alphabet. You have to look at things from a very different perspective. So the criminal cases are, are sadly the ones that you can easily find. So we have evidence of that um, from, you know, 1800s to present day here in St. Louis. And would it be fair to say that some of these laws and these ordinances are really euphemistic? Um, it's, it, was it consciously trying to uh, target this community? Or did people in, in the 1850s St. Louis just feel like we really— um, in, in, the, in the 1843 when it was passed, it, it is along with a, a bunch of other laws about vagrancy, about you can't bathe nude in public, you can't cause a public nuisance. It, it, was, it was sort of a, a, a lot of lumped together um, things, which over the years, other ones were gradually dropped. And it's one of the few that was kept along with vagrancy. And it's, again, it's a, a social morality policing. Um, and while that, that law is no longer on the books, we do have um, laws in Missouri that affect people's lives. So, for instance, um, criminalization around HIV AIDS status in Missouri is something that PROMO and Empower Missouri is working on. Um, and that still, again, impacts people's lives today. And as we study, especially our, our trans history, you look at the cases where um, women would, would dress as men for economic reasons to um, hopefully, if they could be perceived as a man, they could maybe be in a safer work environment, make more money. So, you know, it's hard to know 
as we study these cases. We may not know how they would identify today, but we do know that in that field of study that there, there's a lost trans history that we're never going to be able to really ever get the full story on. And I think something that the straight community doesn't, or members of the straight community don't always fully understand is just that threat of violence, historically speaking. Absolutely. We've had nine. We're not just talking yeah. about social shunning. Uh, right. We're, we're talking about losing jobs, being beaten, being arrested. Right. 26, I believe, um, trans humans were killed last year. We have, I believe it's up to nine trans um, um, humans have been um, killed this year already as of June. It, it's real. It's happening. And, you know, you look at the current presidential administration who's mm. rallied against the um, the trans community. There's there's a lot going on that we have to be very vigilant about. There's a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I want to invite the listeners to join our conversation. What do you have to say about this? How has LGBTQ uh, rights advanced in St. Louis? Or not, give us a call, 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also tweet us, STL on air. Email us, talk at stlpublicradio.org. I am speaking with Miranda Rechtenwald of Washington University Libraries, Paul Teal, a local writer with some memories of the Stonewall Uprising, and Stephen Teal. I'm sorry. Is that correct? Stephen Oh, Steve Brawley. Hi. Steve Brawley. Sorry about that, Stephen. <laughs> no problem. Uh, Stephen, you'll be presenting a lot of this great information uh, Sunday at the Missouri Historic Museum. Correct. History Museum. Um, just yesterday, the New York City Police Commissioner, James O'Neill, apologized for police behavior at Stonewall. He, he said, the actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. The actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive, and for that I apologize. Paul, you lived through some of that police harassment he's apologizing for. Does, does that mean anything to you to hear that? Yeah, it, it means a lot. Uh, it wasn't so much the police action at Stonewall. It was what, was, what came before, all the uh, raiding the premises, uh, arresting people. Uh, if you got arrested, uh, you could lose your job. In fact, you generally did lose your job. Uh, if you worked for the government, forget it. You were out. It was really something. But the weird thing is then, as the 70s progressed, I was in a a gay bar in San Francisco and there were flyers out looking for people who wanted to join the police department, gay people who wanted to join the police department as gay policemen. So things did change relatively rapidly and I was happy to see that. Stephen, Miranda, an apology like that 50 years later, um, is that meaningful? I I think it shows that there is always room to learn from those past events. Nothing is is too late um, to to really recognize what happened. Um, taking a, a positive step like that, I think, is important. And saying wasn't perfect, we can do better now is is always good. Rather than say doubling down and just being like, nope, we were right, and being stubborn about it. So I was glad to hear that about the New York City Police. I'll give it a hesitant, um, you know, affirmation. Um, obviously, there's a lot happening um, in the LGBTQI world, and um, I think police departments in America and around the world have a lot 
they've come away, but there's still much more to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I encourage the St. Louis um, community and the police department. Um, I know there's been a lot of efforts, and I've been involved in some of those too. Um, and I don't like the word sensitivity training, I think, I, but I think there needs to be a lot more um, activities to help people who choose that line of work to understand the communities they're serving. And there's an expression we use sometimes that talk is cheap, but also sometimes I think just having a problem named and acknowledged by, by the, the powerful person in that unequal power dynamic can, right. be, can be very meaningful. Agreed. Right. right. Agreed. Let's, go to the, let's go to the phones. We have a call from Melissa in St. Louis, and she has some observations about um, what, what advances this community has taken or not taken over the years. Melissa, uh, what are your thoughts today? Yeah, I'm a published high school teacher, and uh, I'm a, a queer individual, and I don't, I can't uh, generally pass as straight. As far as advancements have happened, uh, outside of uh, legally being allowed to get married, I've not seen much protection or advancement uh, uh, legally happening. Culturally, I have seen a big change since I started teaching uh, six years ago but I still don't have any more protections now than I did uh, when I started teaching. Uh, My job has been threatened. I've had students uh, write uh, homophobic slurs on my my door, and I have personally worried in that position, worried about losing my job because of something that I had nothing to do with. Melissa, (laughs) when when did that happen? When was that written on your door? Um, About four months ago. Four months ago. So this is very much a live issue that you're facing. Yes. And I, I have to consciously think about, uh, you know, do I mention a partner? Uh, I, I, as a rule, don't necessarily talk about my personal life with students, but I have no doubt that I definitely think much more about uh, what, you know, do I put a picture of my family on my desk or not? Um, is that going to affect my job or, or, any, or, in some cases, my safety? Mm. Melissa, thank you so much for the call. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. Let's let's talk a bit about the face of of, of living in this community in St. Louis and some of the some of the roadmarks along the way. I see that the first anti discrimination ordinance in the city came about in nineteen ninety two. What was what was the, the force or the impact of that? Um yeah, the Miranda. history the history behind that is is actually fairly interesting and, and it wasn't controversial when it passed. It was actually passed because there was federal legislation that said if you were going to apply for certain federal, um, federally supported grant money, block grants, that sort of thing, you had to have a, a, a anti-discrimination policy on the books. And so um, the city alder people passed it in order to be in compliance with that. There wasn't a lot of discussion after it passed. Then there was a lot of pushback. Um, and it was revised and tweaked. Um, it stayed on the books, but um, that's only in the city of St. Louis and then some municipalities, um, but not all um, have that. And there is none for the state of Missouri overall. And in the state of Missouri, same-sex acts were a misdemeanor offense until 1903? Or until oh, excuse 2000, me, 2003. 2003. And that's because of the Supreme Court case um, that, that overturned those laws, not because of action in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, part of this discussion is always um, looking at our language and being sure we're inclusive. And I know during the, the Stonewall era, there was there was a feeling of some folks that, for instance, trans people were left a little bit out of the movement or, or the public affiliation of the movement. And and so we, we continue to change the terms that we use. And nowadays we're talking about the LGBTQIA 
community. Um, let's just be sure everyone understands who, who we're talking about there. Stephen? Well, the alphabet um, you know, can be complicated, just rolling off the tongue, tongue of, of saying it over and over. Um, and so, you know, we have the lesbian, gay, bisexual, True. transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, um, and then there could be others added. A lot of people are putting the plus sign for that. What I what I struggle is, with is, is the plus sign almost an acknowledgement that, that maybe we're missing some people. Oh, and absolutely. And so what the issue really is, especially studying the history, is that you can't use the, the modern alphabet to look back and, and try to capture these stories because the concept of this would never have been something that someone in 1700 or 1840 or 1903 would have ever thought was an option. And so what we really are trying to do is look at um, the information we're finding and and not trying to put you know the, the alphabet with it, match it up identically, but to make sure that we are aware that th these stories may exist if we could just find a hidden diary or a lost um, letter, something from the past that would help tell these stories. It's, it's not easy, but we're, we're not going to give up. We're going to keep fighting through trying to find it. And this year, especially with especially with the trans community under so much duress and, and so, uh, the hate crimes we talked about, the murders that we talked about a minute ago, um, that this year for the first time that um, for the Pride Parade, an organization, not a person, will be the Grand Marshal. So um, St. Louis's um, trans organization. Metro Trans Umbrella Group and Tug will be the Grand Marshal, and it's very important for them to be the front and center of this parade, to to be there to tell their story, to, to be heard, and to let people know what's happening. Paul, you you lived in San Francisco in the late '60s, New York City in the early '70s. Right. Um, what's the climate like in in contemporary St. Louis from this point of view? Well, St. Louis has always been sort of different. It's it's a middle country place, and uh, one thing I do recall in high school, some of our teachers were gay. We knew they were gay, and no one ever found any problem with that. Uh, it wasn't out in the open. And to some extent, that was sort of uh, positive in some way. Um, I know that when gay liberation came out, there were some older gay people that said, oh my God, now we're no longer a secret society. And they sort of <laughs> felt kind of honored to be part of a secret society. But I still think it's better for everything to be in the open. Mm. It's such a, such a rich conversation, and we could go on at great length. We are limited by the, the, the format of our one-hour talk show today. So I do want to thank my guests so much for this conversation. We've been talking with Stephen Lewis Browley, author of the book Gay and Lesbian St. Louis, St. Louis-based writer Paul Teal, who was at the Stonewall Uprising 50 years ago, and Miranda Rechtenwald, curator of local history for Washington University Libraries. It has been so great talking with all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.